Welcome to Future of XYZ. I'm your host, Lisa Grelnick, and together we'll explore big questions about where we are as a world and where we're going. Future of XYZ is presented in collaboration with Rhode Island PBS. Hello, and welcome to this leap year edition of Future of XYZ. Today is February 29th. It happens once every four years. And I can't think of a better topic for such a day as the future of complexity, because I think it's highly complex that every four years we add a day to one month of the year. Um, With us today to speak about the future of complexity is Justin Cook. Justin, welcome to Future of XYZ. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, Justin, I mean, you're a strategic designer. You tend to work on really the world's most complex uh, challenges. Um, And, you know, I mean, you have a very illustrious background with a master's in architecture from Harvard and uh, an undergraduate degree from the University of Washington. And you've worked with some of the biggest nonprofits, governments, companies in the world. But right now, um, after having left uh, your work with the Finnish government, the in- Finnish Innovation Fund, I should say, you are at RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design, right in Rhode Island PBS's backyard, and you are running something called the Center for Complexity. Um, so I'm going to just throw you what should be a, an, an easy lob for the first question. Given that background, um, how do you define complexity? Uh, how much time do we have? Um, <laughs> little, very little. Very little time. I mean, I think the, the maybe the more uh, hard-hitting question is what is not complex? I mean, I think what we call complex um, is, uh, you know, things that seem hard to perceive, hard to understand. But if you really look at the objects that we're surrounded by in our day-to-day lives, the transportation systems that we engage with, the energy systems that we engage with, these things are all radically complex. And for the most part, none of us understand how they actually work. Um, and so in sometimes in my lectures, um, I'll use a very simple example of an apple. I'll show an apple on a slide and I'll ask people to tell me what is that. And, and they'll say, well, that's an apple. And then I'll say, well, how do you know it's an apple? At what point does it become an apple? And then I'll show two apples and I'll label one apple as organic. And the other apple then is by inference standard. And then we have a way of beginning to probe the depth of the complexity that makes those very simple objects um, as complex as they are. Because then we have to talk about like labor and agricultural systems and nutrition. Yeah. All of that branding, all of that stuff that goes into uh, making that apple an apple. So everything is complex. We've just developed habits and ways of being to ignore that complexity in the worst case. I think that, you know, that's um, uh, influencing a lot of the challenges that we're facing today is how we're ignoring the inherent complexity and um, simple everyday objects and obviously more complex things such as healthcare. So everything is complex. It's just that we've sort of applied layers of abstraction and modeling and other things um, so that we don't have to deal with that, that complexity. Well, I want to talk about, um, I'm going to get to systems because I think systems feel like the, the, the beast here. Um, And I personally, myself also am very interested in systems, but I want to pause on the individual piece of things. Like the question of what is not complex is actually really 
pertinent. I mean, I think over history, many people and groups have faced what we would call complexity in their personal lives, in their professional lives, in their community lives, you know, communal lives, et cetera. But maybe it's just me. <laughs> but 2024 feels especially complex. Yeah. Um, has it, has the world actually become more complex? Is it true or is it, and if so, why? And Or is it just like a perception? I think it's both. Um, so it's our perception of its complexity is unavoidable because of, especially because of the kind of technologies that we have in our everyday lives, right? So the internet connects us to everything instantly. And um, so it's much easier to perceive that complexity um, than it might have been 15 or 20 years ago. But I think it's always been complex. And, you know, just going back to what I was saying before, we overlay layers of abstraction to sort of avoid that complexity, but it's always been there, right? It's always been inherent to the ecological systems that we build our cities in, uh, the way that we, you know, trade and produce uh, goods, uh, the way that we interact with one another, that complexity has always been there. I think part of the challenge that we're facing now um, is that and it's for most of human history, our impacts on the planet can be absorbed by the planet. There's enough slack in the planetary system to sort of absorb those impacts. I, that slack isn't there anymore. And so, the, you know, you see these models of like planetary limits and we're bumping up against or past so many of them. That Another way of saying that is that there's just not enough capacity left in these planetary systems to absorb um, our, our impacts. And what that means is that we are confronted with how interconnected things are, our role in, you know, uh, dramatically impacting these biophysical, um, systems on the planet. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's sort of all, the answer is all of the above. It's always been a complex, we can't avoid it now, um, because there are so many of us and we're having such a profound effect on the planet and then we have all of these technologies sensing and communication and otherwise that help us see it uh almost instantaneously that's a great answer it's um quite comprehensive um so thanks for that um lots lots of food for thought in there as a designer you stated quite publicly that you think design and creative practices are essential for a world where the future is increasingly discontinuous with the past um, what does this look like in practical terms? Are there like key inputs or actions? Are there people who play a more significant or less significant role? Like what, what's this mean? Yeah. So I've, I've borrowed that idea of discontinuity, uh, um, most given recently and directly from Alex Stefan, who's a, a kind of climate thinker, who's written on this idea that we are sort of living in the discontinuity that, um, our ways of understanding the systems that we've built, the institutions that we've designed and built are not ready for what he says is what, what's already happened, right? That the world has changed profoundly, um, but we're still living as if the past is continuous with the future. And I, I mean, you, you pointed to how unusual 2024 feels and how unusual 2023 was with I mean, look, take any metric, whether it's uh, ocean water temperatures or wildfires or you name it, 
um, you know, that those things didn't happen 20 years ago. And so there is a discontinuity between what happened and what is. And the challenge really is how do we catch up with that, right? How do we perceive that step change between what's felt really stable uh, if we sort of step back and think about generations for the last 10,000 years during the Holocene and where we're at now, the Anthropocene or what we're kind of calling the Polycene, um, which is just a, it's a different planet and it's a different experience being on that planet. And so what so does I just that want to interrupt for one second. Those terms that you just used, yeah. right? You guys are calling Polycene, I call Anthropocene. These are actually not adopted yet by the, you know, International Geologic Society, but these are those periods of geologic time on this planet um, that basically suggest that man has made an irreparable difference to the planetary action structures, et cetera. And we are now exactly, as you said, no longer on a bell curve or a continual linearity of what was, but something completely different. Something completely different. And, and, you know, we're not really using those terms like the geologists do, but we find them very useful because we need, you know, if you remember like, I don't know, 10, 15 years ago, um, we were still using this term, the 21st century to try to describe something that's the future and very different. Um, but I think that the scale, the speed, the scope of change is such that like 21st century doesn't really capture it, right? There's a real difference between what has been before and what we are experiencing now. And so, yeah, I mean, one of the questions we have often is, what does the Anthropocene mean? Is that just a frame of time? Is there a project behind the Anthropocene? Meaning, let's figure out how to get our our house in order so that our species can continue. Um, and then we put forward this idea of the Holocene, which we could talk about later, um, just as a way to kind of refocus what the where your attention is when you think about these different planetary epics. But um, to your question, I mean, I, I think it's, um, if we're talking about a future that is discontinuous with the past and we built um, our ways of being, our ways of organizing, our ways of measuring, um, our the ways that we design and sustain institutions on that previous model, planetary model, um, then and we're facing, or we are already in a dramatically different time with different rules, different dynamics, then kind of everything has to be redesigned. I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, but there's a significant challenge of redesign from, you know, our daily practices as individuals, as parents, as whatever it might be, um, to our sort of our institutions and the protocols that sustain and direct our institutions and the decisions that they that they make. So it's a profound moment of redesign. Of course, I have a bias here as a designer, but um, I think that's the case if you're willing to accept that we are in a very different time. Call it the Anthropocene, fight for century, whatever it, whatever it they're is. labels. Yeah, they're just labels, and I think we all see the change that is afoot and inherent in in this moment. I won't say all, but yes, most. I think, um, I mean, you've worked in your, as we alluded to at the beginning, and I can't, I don't even have time on the 20, 25 minutes here of XYZ to go through your entire resume, Justin. Um, but you have worked, in, it's quite an illustrious career to date. 
and you've worked largely in systems. So, I mean, healthcare, sustainability, decarbonization, opioid crisis, nuclear proliferation. I mean, this is just to name a few, education, future of cities, future of food. I mean, this is the work that you do. It's quite at this level. Um, but they all refer to systems. And you talked about that in your two apples example, right? Like an apple is an apple until you start labeling it. And then you have to like dive into like all the reasons why it's a different kind of apple than just a word apple or a concept. Is complexity innate to systems by its nature or are systems designed to be complex because back in a different era than it made people gave people jobs and purpose and and it was built upon built upon built upon i, I mean is it what's the chicken and the egg and how did you then solve for it yeah um i mean i think that um there's an argument to be made um that systems don't actually exist. This might sound a bit academic, um, but that, um, you know, systems are a way of perceiving and making sense of, of the world, or um, it's hard to even talk about, say, something like healthcare without attaching that label of system, right? To say that there are all of these things that interconnect, and we don't know how to describe it well, so we're going to say it's a system. But then our understanding of systems is that there's there's an order there and that there's a predictability there and of course these are human-made systems and anytime you involve humans in anything it becomes very hard to predict how those things will behave so you know i think systems it's really useful as a way to sort of perceive to probe to in some cases try to catalog or map complexity um, the complexity that's inherent in any kind of human-made construct like a healthcare system. There's that word again. Um, it's a way of thinking. It's a way of seeing. Uh, it's it's a way of, um, in fact, ordering or trying to order something that maybe can't be ordered. And, you know, we're, this is one of our areas of, of active research and thinking because designers in particular have adopted very strongly uh, this kind of um, role of systems navigators, systems thinkers. And that's given designers a kind of power um, within certain communities. That's why I say I've had access to various um, roles in government or other large institutions because they're, they inherently work within systems that try to make sense of them, um, but they're trying to make sense of them through their silos of economics or you know, whatever it is, labor policy or something else. And um, whereas at us designers, we care less about those silos. We care more about dynamics, right? Or behaviors. Um, so yeah, systems, I think it's, it's a, it's a kind of framework or a frame or lens for making sense of that, that complexity. And, you know, through this research that we're trying to do, we're trying to advance that practice to make it more rigorous based more in um, some of the kind of system sciences that have cropped up at, in places uh, like the Santa Fe Institute and the Complexity of Vienna. There are other organizations around the world that you know, take a very hard sciences, a very quantitative approach to modeling and understanding systems. That's not accessible for many of us. And are those mostly think tanks or research centers? 
research centers and you know their their publishing papers and um, and you know their those papers and those sort of ways of understanding complexity and systems make their way into other fields like biology lead to outcroppings within say biology like systems biology um, but it, it's harder to access for say somebody that's working in I don't know on the front lines of the opioid crisis as, as you mentioned so um, but we think there's a sort of middle path of that kind of harder science and the more softer systems approach that designers have been taking to work within you know healthcare or whatever the whatever the problems face might be well I mean just to just say, I mean, this is highly academic. And for the most part, most people don't have space in their day-to-day brains yeah. or capacity to to integrate most of these things, to ask these questions. They may not have exposure um, for lots of different reasons. I mean, my understanding of systems, you know, especially supply chain systems changed fundamentally after getting an MBA, right? And, and really going into that world. So, you know, we can't expect everyone to have all the same access or skills, but this world is getting more complex. We've we've acknowledged that, um, and we each, as individuals and communities, I think, need to build up what I would consider kind of capacities or creative responses or something to manage and and survive, maybe even flourish in 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 this complexity that's uncertain and complex. How do you teach that? Like stepping away from the academia and practical terms. Yeah, I, I mean, some of well, this is touch on the academic part. I mean, all of our work at the center um, is always done in partnership with people that are on the front lines of whatever issue it is that we're working on. So, you know, we have a um, significant area of work on the opioid crisis, particularly in Rhode Island, and we're working across the community of responders to that crisis to, and really try to understand from their perspective, what is the nature of the problem and where can new interventions be developed to have a positive social impact on, on that problem. So some of the frameworks that I'm describing are academic, but like we are in the real world doing real work. And, you know, I think that's kind of inherent to design, right? Design is always tasked with making something. Um, whenever it might be, it's not, it's not paper designed. It's, you know, it's action oriented and output oriented. So that's, that's where we're always sort of trying to, um, to focus our attention. Um, I, I don't know. I think our, our work, um, as it applies to, uh, these problem spaces, while it, it sort of seems academic. Part of what we have to do is, um, as in your question, is help bring people to a place where, in a sense, giving them permission to to recognize that, yes, they exist within a very complex system and it's hard to understand what's going on. And I think, especially for people that have professional training, say, in engineering or whatever the field might be, like part of the identity that they bring to the table is being certain about something, right? We want our doctors, any kind of anybody in a clinical setting, to be certain about something. And what we will sort of deploy as a set of um, teaching tools or ways of engaging with our our partners and community is 
ways of becoming more comfortable with that uncertainty and saying, you know, we may not know actually what's going on and that's okay. And see before the whole thing about discontinuity, right? And apples and all of these sort of frameworks that we deploy um, to say, there are things that we can't know or are very hard to know. And we should find ways of being comfortable with that. So you hear always this sort of comfort with uncertainty. Um, yes, that's an objective, but the question is, how do you become comfortable with uncertainty? And so that's something that we would teach. And that then begins to create a space for people to um, really begin to engage with the complexity and nuance of a problem. And part of our work as designers or as facilitators is to you know, open that, open and maintain that space where they can operate with uncertainty and ask questions, right? To kind of create a space of inquiry where um, they have an opportunity to to practice not knowing. So I feel part- like that's I feel like that's actually like uh, an education or a practice or a workshop that every human being today should 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 engage with because I mean. None of us is certain about anything. We reward people who say they're certain when they're not. It's how blame happens. Right. And, and I hate to say it, but I mean, some of these systems that we're talking about, you know, when we talk about oppressed groups, marginalized communities, you know, communities of color, you know, race, ethnicity, religion, gender, you know, sexuality, it goes, the, the otherized list goes on and on and on. But these are systems and constructs also that have been layered on to keep those status quos, if you will, wherever they are. And obviously those are intricate, you know, and complex as well to unravel. But to be uncertain is 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 beneficial for all of us as we try to unravel some of what we know is really broken um in our in our social fabric. Um instead of, you know, being certain and saying, well, it's the immigrants or it's the, you know, the blame and, and the otherizing. Yeah, I mean, I, I think another way of describing that is to ask the question of what is true and how do we know what is true? Um, I like this example that sometimes you'll hear around, um, you know, if I look at your face with my eyes, I know your face to be true, I guess, right? At least as far as my eyes can perceive. But if I look at your face through a microscope, that is also true but I can't see your face as I see it now with my eyes. So these things are both true, but they're completely different ways of seeing and knowing. And um, sometimes we'll talk about, you know, moving between scales to try to get a better sense of complexity. So thinking about something at a micro scale, that might mean if you're working in healthcare about an individual patient. Um, But then moving through, say, the meso and macro scales as well to develop a more kind of comprehensive understanding of what's going on. Um, That's one way to kind of get at that issue. I think the other thing that we, uh, another kind of principle that we bring in our work is to um, another academic uh, academic term, but this idea of transdisciplinarity, meaning it's not just one discipline that we want to work with. It's not just somebody that has an MD or um, an economist, we want to work with them all. But we also want to work with and understand from people that have lived experience in that problem space, whatever that might be. Um, Because that's a way of knowing that's just as valuable as the more technical um, and in in some cases more valued ways of knowing. Um, So we try to create the conditions where all of those ways of knowing sit on an equal playing field and in an equal and that that's a way to get 
I think that kind of diversity of ways of knowing is a way to get closer to truth, right? And and how to have a kind of ideological frame. But that's that's a technique, right? That's a technique that designers can deploy and others to um, get closer to that to that sense of truth. It's totally fascinating. Um, we're coming up on time, but I want to before I ask the final question, Justin, I want to just challenge you. As a designer, it's clear that you are going to disagree. Um, but Fast Company, which is a generally respected, innovative, you know, forward-looking publication um, about business and science and tech and all the things, recently declared that design thinking is dead. Um, what do you make of that and what is the future of design in the next five to 10 years, given that? I'm not going to disagree. Um, I, I'm surprised they didn't declare dead earlier, honestly. I mean, I, I thought it would be probably 2020. I think in 2015, I wrote something about uh, design thinking had five more years and um, then we had a pandemic. And so it kind of stretched out, stretched out for a while. Um, Look, I mean, I, 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 you know, as soon as uh, design thinking made it onto the cover of HBR, I knew that, and I think any designer knew that um, this was a, a trend, right? It was a kind of management trend. And these trends always have life cycles attached to them. And I, as, and as, all, as, it, as soon as it becomes a trend, then too, you have this proliferation of whenever it is, right? It doesn't matter what trend it is. And so what that means is that the quality of that thing tends to go down as people pick it up and the excitement around it and so on and so forth. So um, I think, yes, design thinking's dead. I've, I've certainly seen that within organizations that we work with where I remember sitting uh, and giving a talk to I don't know, probably 50 people that run accounts across a manufacturing vertical in this company. And I said, how many of you have done design thinking workshops and everybody raised their hand, right? Like it's just, it became ubiquitous. Um, so yeah, it's, it's made its way through the system. I think that though there's an opportunity for designers to reassert their value and I would do it along the lines of sort of where we started this conversation, which is to say there is a discontinuity. And therefore, there is an opportunity for a redesign of virtually everything. And that's not, and it's worse that that design thinking was a kind of innovation theater where, you know, we're post-it notes and all that stuff, that reordering ideation. Um, it's not that. It's something deeper. It's more analytical in nature. It's more systems-oriented in nature. It's transdisciplinary. Uh, uh, as a it's trying to get to a truth and trying to find a truth. Yeah. And, and if there isn't a truth that we know, then to try to create the conditions where we have a better sense of what that truth might be and then do what design does really well, which is put things out into the world and, and see how the world responds to those things. Right. And in that response, um, we will gain a lot of information and the ability to create the next prototype, the next iteration and, and keep sort of working toward that, that truth. So it's fine with me if design's th design thinking's dead. I, I don't think that means we give up. I think it, it just creates an opportunity to um, redefine what design and creative practice in general can do. 
And last question, super quick answer. What's your greatest hope, given what we're talking about in terms of complexity from the past and today? What's your greatest hope for the world 20 years from now? Um, yeah, that's a <laughs> 20 years. I mean, in, in the conditions of discontinuity, 20 years might as well be a thousand years, right? I mean, it's just, it's, it's impossible to imagine. Today is my son's 11th birthday and, um, you know, the world 11 years ago, what a radically different time that was. Um, so 20 years, I don't know. I, I think, um, I think this is an opportunity to really step back and see what is working for us as a society, what, how institutions are working or not working and make a decision or millions of decisions about what we need to stop doing, what we should continue to do and what we need to start doing. Um, and just be kind of honest about how, how it is that we've gotten to where we are and, um, and to make clear-eyed decisions about what it is that we need to get to 20 years out and beyond. Um, so I guess my hope is, is that we're all able to do that in our own spheres of influence and that that kind of collective action leads toward a, a much better planet and society that we're, we're currently experiencing. Justin Cook, the founding director of the Center for Complexity at the Rhode Island School of Design and design thinker for sure. Thanks you for uh, for joining us on this uh, leap year edition of Future of XYZ. Thank you, Lisa. It's been my pleasure. Um, for everyone watching and listening, first of all, happy leap year. Hope it doesn't confuse you too much. Hope it doesn't feel too complex. Um, what's not complex is going to give us a five-star review anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast or following us at Future of XYZ on Instagram. You can also watch the video on YouTube at our presenting partner, Rhode Island PBS, ripbs.org forward slash XYZ. Um, and uh, if you want more information, visit future-of.xyz. And we will see you again uh, in two weeks' time on a normally scheduled calendar date. Um, happy complexity. Thank you again, Justin. Thank you.